0: You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. After a wee bit of a summer break, we're back in harness to explore the life and times of Henry Shaplin Colt, AKA Harry Colt, widely considered to be the father of modern golf course architecture. I'm very pleased to report that Adam Lawrence, one of the foremost Colt experts, joins us today to explore his legacy influence on the golden age of golf course architecture and beyond. Adam is the principal at Oxford Golf Consulting and also the editor of Golf Course Architecture magazine. He is currently also hard at work on the definitive book on the life and times of Harry Colt entitled More Enduring Than Brass. A tip of the cap to a poem by Horace and an echo of Bernard Darwin's description of Colts done a loose course at Royal Port Rush during the Open Championship of 1951. If this is your first time listening to the pod, you are very welcome. Indeed, if you're a returning listener, well, welcome back. Please remember to like, subscribe, and review. It really is appreciated and it really does help. With the introduction sorted, it's now time to join our conversation about Harry Colt. Hi Adam, you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. It's great to have you here.
1: Hi Shane, good to be good to be here.
0: Super. Listen, I've been following Paul Larson, the superintendent at Royal St. George's, on his Twitter account for most of the summer. It would appear that the east coast of England, where you're located, has been pretty dry these past few months. Yeah,
1: although as we, as, as we just mentioned, it's um, started to rain quite a bit these last four or five days. God knows we need it. So.
0: Paul's rain dance has done the trick. I'm just interested now how your beloved princess has fared with the lack of rain in Southeast England this summer. I'm confess I've
1: hardly, I've hardly been at princes this year. I was there about a month ago and it was dry, very dry. But I think they're just about all right. Those guys have got you know those guys have got plenty of irrigation water on in, in the story if any.
0: Good stuff. Well, listen, just as an introductory piece and for the benefit of our listeners who don't know who Adam Lawrence is, you might just give us a quick intro to who Adam Lawrence is.
1: Well, do you want me to start at the beginning and go forwards, or do you want me to start at the end and go backwards? Whatever you wish, my man, whatever you wish. So, um, I've been, well, let's gloss over the um, first 30-odd years. Um, I've been a journalist all my life. In south Africa university and in 2005 when i was working for a publishing company investor called judo rose the head of editorial um, i got involved in the launching of gca magazine i was the only member of our editorial team who was a golfer so it became my baby and over the years i spent more and more time on it in 2012 I lost my, both my parents in 2010-11, within five months, uh, and inherited a certain amount of cash from them, which gave me a bit of freedom, and I decided to leave Euros and go solo in 2012, uh, since which time I've spent my all my time trying to report on, report on golf design and then living doing just that. I do PR for various companies in the golf industry, I just say on contracts, and as you know, I've been writing um, Harry Colt's biography for
0: too damn long. And I guess given the fact that you are indeed currently writing a biography on Harry Colt, I can think of nobody better to explore the central role that Colt played in creating the profession of golf course architecture. In essence, this is the first episode of our old Dead Guys series from a course design perspective. Obviously, Harry's influence was felt directly and indirectly far and wide through mainland UK, Ireland, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain north and south america south africa australia new zealand and japan if i've not left anywhere out there for those listeners that may not be aware i think probably the best place to start is a brief outline on the cult family tree of partners associates influencers and influences we'll investigate some of these avenues specifically as we progress chronologically through harry's life his experiences and his, his achievements
1: well so cult obviously was the founding secretary of Sunningal from 1901 onwards and from 1907 he started to transition into being a golf architect. In about 1909, when he got the the job to create Stoke Burgers, Hugh Allison became the founding secretary there and and pretty much at the same time started assisting Colt with his work. The first Hard evidence that we, that we have of Alison as a golf architect is a drawing of Luffenham Heath, which, if I remember rightly, was done in 1911 or 12. And Allison and Colt were partners for the rest of Colt's life and almost Alison's life. He died not that long after Colt. Colt first met Alison McKenzie in 1908, when he was asked to advise on the design of Alwoodley, which obviously Dr. McKenzie, who was a founding member of the club, wanted to do. I think the committee were pretty nervous about handing over their their course project to somebody who had no no experience of of the question altogether. And they said, well, okay, you can do it, but we're going to get an expert in to um, review what you're doing and tells you not barking completely on the tree. Um, Colton McKenzie became friends and post-World War I became partners, although it was a pretty semi-detached partnership. They weren't together for very long. After the split with McKenzie in the early 20s, John Morrison came on board as, as eventually the third partner and Morrison lived into the early 60s and kept the, com- the company name going until his death in terms of sort of informal associates. uh, Colt had quite a significant influence on Donald Ross fairly early in his career because Ross was asked to build Colt design at Old Elm in Chicago, and also worked with him at Indian Hill on the same trip. Stanley Thompson in Canada was known to be hugely influenced by Colt. Obviously, the Colt influence spread very, very much to Japan when asked went there. Uh, Colt and Morrison particularly did a lot of courses across Europe and through Germany, um, the Stockholm Golf Club in Sweden, lots in France. Colt was responsible for basically reducing golf to Spain, When he built de Hero in Madrid and did several of the courses in Spain. And they were called influence courses spread across the world. There's one done in Trinidad, uh, which was done by way of sending a plasticine model out there done from topographic maps. There was another one in the west of Canada, in Calgary, which was done in 1912-13, again from topographic maps using a plasticine model. Uh, Allison did some work in Australia via, via topographic maps. Alison did quite a bit of work in South Africa. He did a course in Tenerife. He worked in Morocco. Um, Alison, whether he was inherently, um, you know, sort of a fairly travel-oriented guy, he travelled all over the world at the time, so he's quite a focus in, in, in a sense. And obviously there is the influence through McKenzie into the Australian and US markets as well. And then something I discovered quite recently, which is rather lovely, if you have read Fred Hawtree's book on cult, at the back of that book there is um, possibly the most interesting, certainly from my perspective as, as a researcher, there is a selection of letters between... Colt slightly, and Allison and Morrison primarily. And in those after Colt's death, Morrison says that he's been asked to go out to Kuwait to design a golf course by the um, oil company, which at the time was just about to start pumping oil from the Kuwaiti Desert. And he was going to fly out there. So he flew out there by BOAC, taking about three days and stopping in practically every hill and ditch across Europe. Um, and he led out a course in the desert, which was obviously not on grass, it was a sand course. Um, and he came home. And the course is still there. Now, I, I discovered that early this year, and since then I've been trying to figure out a way to get to Kuwait to see it. I've actually approached the Kuwait Company, but I haven't had a response um, as to whether there's anything in the news. And a if any li- listeners happen to have a contact with the Couette all Company, then uh, please contact me at
0: adam.oxfordgolfconsulting.com. Wait till I get my little black book out for you. <laughs> Listen, that's great just in terms of broad brushstrokes in terms of cults, influences and, and the wider sort of partner side of things. We might initially focus on Harry's early life. I believe upon his father's death, young Harry was dispatched to Malvern in the Worcestershire Hills. And it was here that he fell in love with the game of golf under the tutelage of one Douglas Rolland, originally from Ely Golf Club in Scotland, and James Braid's cousin, no less. What can you tell us about young Colts' early dalliance with golf, and indeed the influence that Rolland had on the young Harry? Well,
1: none of this is particularly well... Uh, yeah, a lot of this is, can, not speculation exactly, but it's... It, it, it's inference, shall we say. Um, it seems certain to me that Colt started playing golf in the first place because he, Colt was the youngest of his family, um, and his brother George, to whom he was clearly quite close, was significantly older than he was. Um, George Colt played golf. Uh, he first appears in the minute books at the Worcestershire Golf Club in Melbourne in 1882. When Colt himself would have been twelve or thirteen, Harry first appears in those in eighteen eighty seven which is quite interesting because that was really not very long before he went to Cambridge, so he when he by the time he started playing golf at Cambridge, he really hadn't been playing golf for very long, and he clearly got quite good quite quickly um as far as Roland is concerned. Ron is a very interesting figure, as, 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 as you know. Um, he was basically forced out of Scotland because somebody brought a paternity suit against him. He didn't appear in the courts to answer, answer the suit and consequently was charged with contempt. Now, obviously, as you probably know, um, the courts do not take kindly to people who um, are guilty of contempt of court, and he, put, he would be in a lot of trouble for that. So he left Scotland. Obviously, Scottish law at the time didn't apply in England. Um, and he was basically unable to return to Scotland, which is why he was unable to appear between the, in the Open between 1884 and 1894. And in both those Opens, he finished second. Um, 1884 was the last, last time he could play in Scotland, 1894 was the first time we the Open was at Rolls and George sandwich. So in England, Roland was clearly a very fine golfer. He, his course record around Malvern was a 71 when the best score, at the time, the best score by an amateur was an 80. Um, he stayed at Malvern until 1890. Then he went to um, the Limpsfield Chart Club, which was the first course on the Surrey Heath. And then he went to Rye in 1894, and that's when he and Colt met up again, I believe. Mm-hmm. And obviously, they, they together were responsible for the second iteration of the Rye course.
0: It's interesting. I wasn't aware that that Harry hadn't started until nearly about the same time that he went to Cambridge, because obviously he was at Cambridge, I believe, between 1887 and 1890, following in his father's footsteps. At Clare College, obviously studying law. I'm led to believe also that he captained the Cambridge golf team during his time at the university and undoubtedly, by the sounds of it, became a, a very good player pretty quickly. Just looking at his record in the amateur championship over the following years, I believe he had three quarterfinal appearances, with his best result being a semi final appearance in 1906. How important do you feel that the friendships and connections that Harry made at Cambridge uh, were to the direction of travel that his career would take him? Well, it's certainly where he
1: became very deeply involved with golf. Um, as I said, he first appeared at Malvern in their minutes on April the 13th, 1887. That's 12 days before he matriculated as a, um, as an undergraduate at Clare. At Clare. Now... Mike Morrison, the Cambridge golf historian, has done a lot of research into this. And there is no evidence of Colt playing golf in Cambridge in his first year. He appears in the club's records not until 1888, and November 1988 at that, so the very end of the year. Uh, at which point he has been playing golf for less than two years. So you know, I, I think that he either felt he didn't have time to play golf at Cambridge because he was too busy studying, or alternatively he felt he wasn't a good enough player. Um, when he first appears at Cambridge... In November 1988, sorry, he is off a handicap of six. As I say, now at that point, he's been playing golf for less than two years. So he's a six handicap within two years of taking up the game. So that tells you something about how he played. The same day, he was off, he was like to, to the club committee, which is something of a surprise, you know, considering how short a time he'd been involved. And he plays for the university for the first time in December and and is in the top match. Um, He plays his first varsity match in March of 1889. Um, And he's at number three of the team. And he he is made captain of the club um, in May of 1889. So he's only been in the club for six months, and he's, and he's made as captain. Um, so, you know, as I said, the evidence is sketchy, but the, 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 what is very clear is that he got good quickly. Um, he remained captain of the club for several terms, and in March of 1890, he captained Cambridge in the lastly match against Oxford which they won by one hole. They scored by holes, not by matches in those days. Um, In terms of Cambridge's influence on him, in in terms of friendships, Tommy Linskill, the founder of Cambridge Golf, was somebody who was a friend of his for a long time, and Linskill was a St Andrews man. So I, I haven't got evidence of this, but I suspect, bearing in mind that Colt joined the RNA in 1819, <laughs> that Linskill might have proposed him as a member. Um, he became a member of Littleston in, I think, 1891. Littleston Littlestone, Kent um, proposed by a Cambridge friend and colleague. And obviously Littleston is not that far from Hastings and Rye. And it makes me wonder whether that, was, that had an influence on his eventual decision to settle in that area. But a lot of the key Cambridge influences happened after he left university. So John Lowe, for example, who was a very close friend of golf, obviously a very key influence on golf design in those, early, in those early years. Lowe was at Clare as well. And it has often been suggested that the two were friends at university but Lowe only arrived at Clare after Colt had, let, had left. Darwin similarly was a friend, but was not there at the same time. He was there quite a few years later. A few years later. Um, so in terms of connections, obviously Cambridge is important, but in terms of direct direct key friendships that were lasting, I think it's perhaps... Um, his actual years in Cambridge were perhaps a lot more, felt to be more influential than they actually were. Uh, I, I think the foundation of the Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society in 1897 or 8 was extremely influential.
0: You know, it, it's funny, just as a, a complete aside, and I know I've mentioned this particular picture in the podcast, I think, with Stephen uh, Proctor. But a good mate of mine was actually in Rye Golf Club probably last year and took a phenomenal picture, actually. This was just up on the wall, the Oxford and Cambridge Golf Society versus the Dublin Golf Club, I think from 1904 or 1903, something like that. And there's Darwin, there's Allison, and there's uh, Stuart Patton, et etc., et cetera, et cetera. Stuart Patton, incidentally, did not attend Oxford or Cambridge, but
1: was, was, was admitted to the society as, Sort of, uh, they made him a member because he was a good guy and a good friend and a good friend of a lot of people
0: in, in strict terms. He shouldn't have been in there, an, an honorary member, yes, but sir. just for, for yes, what sir. he did in Woking, that's probably allowed. If we sort of move on, obviously, Harry, as we said, did law at Cambridge and his brother George as well. And his brother, I beg your pardon, although he was
1: not his father George, is interesting. started off as a sister. but then became a barrister towards the end of his life, uh-huh. which is interesting, but yeah, not humane, really.
0: Obviously, he practised law in the town of Hastings, anyway, in East Sussex. Uh, Rye Golf Club, I believe, is located approximately 13 miles from Hastings. Mm-hmm. It would appear that Colt joined Rye... Not long after its founding in eighteen ninety four, and as as you mentioned earlier, he he was also entrusted with the help of his former mentor Dougie Rowland, to revise the original course at Rye. The new course would open for play in April eighteen ninety five, I believe. Ninety five was also the year that he was made partner in the firm Sayer and Colt. No, that was that, that
1: was that was eighteen ninety four. He, he he became a partner as soon as he as soon as he was. I mean, he clearly bought into the firm essentially.
0: Your book uh, to clarify these things couldn't, couldn't more more needed the the dates. It's funny when you try and do a bit of research; the dates actually are all over the place. And I know as as as, as other historians and writers, sort of say, well, at the end of the day, trying to have everything one hundred percent is pretty much a a fool's errand. So, but thank you for correcting my mistakes. Obviously, it appears that golf was still Harry's main passion, and I believe he would become either honorary secretary or captain. I found again two different references with regard. He was, he was
1: secretary of Rye for several years. He yeah, was yeah, Captain. I, I think later he became captain.
0: Okay. Okay. I guess I'm just interested to understand, first of all, uh, with regard to Rye, Adam. What do we know about the circumstances of Colt and Rollins' appointment as designers of the revised Rye Golf Club? Well, I, I
1: don't. I, I think appointment is rather too grand a word for that. The initial course opened in um, March of 1894. It was, I assume, extremely rough and ready, and it certainly didn't have any bunkers. Um, There is a, a nice letter written by Colt to the local paper in March of 1894, um, talking about the club and the golf course, saying you know, that the, indeed, the, inland there is a fine stretch of good golfing turf, undulating in nature, bounded by water dykes and crossed by smaller bridges, which form excellent natural hazards. Indeed, there will not be an artificial bunker through the whole links. Um, yeah, he and Roland added quite a lot of bunkers, so that clearly didn't last very long. Um, but that initial course was obviously pretty damn pretty damn rough and it was almost straight away that they started to re to, 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 to create the, um, the, the, the the modern version which which opened in April 95 1895 sorry I keep saying 1995 um, as I say I, I think to use the word appointed is a rather grand excuse me, in those days, there was no real such such thing as golf architecture your tom morris's and your tom dunn's might swing by and spend a day walking across a piece of ground and saying put a tee here put a green there put a tee here put a green there maybe the a bunker here maybe the bunker there that was it um and if you didn't use morris or dunn you might hire another pro, another local pro. And clearly, obviously, Rolland was the club pro, he was the obvious choice to help them redo the course. In his, uh, as well also, he was the pro, he was there all the time, and he was in a good position to provide a lot of the labour. Colt was the best golfer in the club, and clearly a lot of the other members deferred to him in that respect. So I, I suspect it, it was a process of. Roland was the person they asked to do the job, and Colt came became involved
0: by default almost. So, so right, right place at the right time. Possibly. Oh yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I'm just just kind of keen to understand if Colt ever collaborated with Roland post Rye, or was Rye the only collaboration he had with Roland from a design perspective?
1: There is evidence. Um, that they looked at a couple of other projects. In Hastings, when Rye was first mooted, there was no golf. Uh, the Hastings and St. Lennon's Club opened at almost exactly the same time. Now that was a sort of cliff top, downland course, outside Hastings, it wasn't the links, um, And it was originally laid out by Tom Dunn In 1895, they added a second nine, which was Colton Rollins' work. Uh, they also advised in 1899 the Bexhill Club, again, pretty close by, on a potential move that didn't happen. But that is basically as far as I can prove anything between them, in terms of him and Rolland working together.
0: You know, I, I have I've not played right yet, but I do understand that essentially Good. essentially the the golf course as it is currently is routed in and around and over and through a big dune spine that kind of runs runs down through the property i'm just kind of wondering if if what's there right now how how related to the 1895 revision of rolland and colt uh,
1: the course has been revised a lot over the years and on many occasions as well, there are bits here and there, are bits there. As I understand it, what's there now is mostly the work of Sir Guy Campbell. How much original cult there is still there, I do not know, and have never had chance to investigate that part that closely. Okay, but fine. I don't think it's that much.
0: Cool. If we sort of move chronologically through a few further signposts, obviously 1897. Colt and John Lowe who you mentioned previously were founding members of the RNA Rules Committee and we will come back to one of the more pressing concerns that they had with regard to ball technology in the early uh, years of the 1900s Uh, 1898 Colt Lowe and Horace Hutchinson co-founded the Oxford and Cambridge Golf Society. Rye Golf Club became and remains home of the society to this day. I guess we sort of see Colt in 1899 the Royal and Ancient uh, employed their very first full-time secretary and, and advertised their intention to, to do so. Colt applied for this position. Um, interestingly, his application included high-profile testimonials from renowned golfing luminaries of the day, including multiple amateur championship winner and writer Horace Hutchinson, Samuel Muir Ferguson, who laid out the original course in New Zealand, mm-hmm. uh, and would we'll go on to captain the RNA, and finally, Arthur James Balfour, prominent amateur golfer, former Chief Secretary of Ireland, who would indeed succeed his uncle Lord Salisbury as Prime Minister in 1902.
1: Balfour was a member of Rye from pretty much its foundation, and there's quite a lot in the papers of the day written about Balfour appearing down at Rye to play golf. He must have been on that train down from London quite a lot. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. Plenty of spare time but the standards of it then, so... Um, Colt was unsuccessful in his uh, application. I'm just wondering, as a complete aside, do we know anything of Colonel Elliot, who I believe became Yeah,
1: so um basically, as you know, the RA decided to appoint its first paid secretary in eighteen ninety-nine. Interestingly, um the motion to Engage a paid secretary was, was, was proposed by, at an AGM by Herbert Fowler. Whether he had anything in mind, Fowler was a, was born to a very rich family and lost his, all his money on several occasions. He was a terrible businessman. So, um, But anyway, Colt decided he would apply for that role. He put together as part of his application a quite remarkable set of testimonials um, it was headed by Balfour on, on Ten Downing Street headed paper, uh, and he had letters from James Obrie Fairley, who was the son of the founder of the Open Championship, also from Hutchinson, from Sir Ferguson, uh, from Ernie Blackwell, and from a lot of H- H- Hastings business leaders, all telling the RNA they couldn't go, they couldn't get a better man. Uh, they, the RNA received 79 applications and they created the shortest of five, which included Colt, obviously, two existing club secretaries and two Scottish military men, uh, one of whom was the guy who was, uh, was appointed. And he was, he was called Colonel William, William Elliot Lockhart. Um, so he was appointed. He was a retired military man. And he had been formerly commander of the Royal Artillery Unit at Woolwich. And he had, in that appointment, he turned around the officer's mess from being a loss making to a profitable concern. So I suspect that's why they hired him. They thought he was a good businessman. Um, as it turned out, he was only in the post for the year. He resigned in January 1901. and he was replaced by a guy called Fred Westley, who had previously been secretary manager of the Piccolo Club in London. Um what would have happened to Colt if he'd been appointed by the RNA is very is a very interesting question. Um how long he would have stayed in the role is obviously the you know, sort of counterfactual that we can't can't possibly come up with. Whether he would have remained solely in the RNA or whether he would have got interested in, interested in his the changing nature of the golf business as to relate to design. Again, it's impossible to tell. Those are total kind of um, But it's clear that by that time, around 1900, he was interested in spending more of his time within the golf sector. Like it's my theory that the founding the foundation of the Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society, um, which led him to spend a lot more time with his golfing friends, rather than being a country solicitor in Hastings, reminded him of how much fun he he had when he was surrounded by golf people. Um, It's pretty clear that he didn't do financial reasons. There is research that shows um, the average English solicitor in the year 1900 made £1,500 a year. Lockhart was appointed RNA secretary on £300 a year. When Colt eventually went to Sunnydale, he was appointed, he was hired on £150 a year. So he clearly didn't make the move for financial reasons because he's taking a 90% salary cut. So it was obviously something that he very much wanted to do.
0: Yeah, I think probably it's safe enough to say that the r as loss was most certainly Sunningdale's gain. As you pointed out there, Colt was successful in beating off the challenge of 434 other applicants, apparently, for the position of founding secretary at Sunningdale. The old course at Sunningdale was originally designed by Willie Park Jr., opening to great acclaim uh, in 1901. What can you tell us about the revisions that Colt would undertake to the Park Jr. course over his tenure at Sunningdale? Well-
1: the first thing to note is that they were very, very extensive. Um, if you read um, all the early comments on Sunningdale, there are some very, very significant changes. Um, Colt rebuilt quite a lot of the old course service uh, over his 12 years as, um, uh, as club secretary. The path three is at Sunningdale, which I would say is still not the course's, Greatest feature, um, but the par threes, Darwin in particular said that they were. Well, they were where, where are we? Almost as surely as the two shot holes constitute its strength, the short holes are the weakness of a course. Really good and interesting short holes add a crowning glory to a golf course, and that I think Sunningdale lacks. It resembles in that respect another fine course, Deal, where the longer holes are admirable. And the short holes are almost totally wanting in distinction. The short holes at there are, however, much better than they used to be. For there was a time when they might have been rather scathingly dismissed as consisting of two practically blind shots onto artificial table lands, and a third entirely blind shot onto a bad sloping green. But this third approach has been at least now been entirely wiped out. Now that quote is from Darwin in the golf Courses of the British Isles, which is 1910, 1911 um, so he's talking about what the course was originally like and then what his life was, like, was called got to work. Um, the 17th Green is completely cold. Um, the but basically uh, the, the court he, he did revise the course quite significantly. Um, and it, it is I think important to, to realize, how quickly he became renowned, renowned as an expert in course of design and greenkeeping. Um, his early design, paid design jobs in 1907 and 1908, he was already regarded as an expert in on the subject when he got those jobs. He didn't develop it once he started practicing as an architect. So the impact of the selling Bill years is... It's important to realise how small the golf world was pre-World War I. Uh, everyone knew Sunningdale and everyone knew what Colt had done at Sunningdale.
0: And in fact, seeing some of his advertisements in publications, the reference to Sunningdale was centre to the advertisements. So he really leveraged leveraged the crap out of it. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. In about 1908... There had clearly been somebody had said something to the press that basically said something know, his Colt's course, I was, I mean, not in other words, obviously, but um, and that it wasn't it really wasn't anything to do with, with Willie Park. So he sent a letter to Golf straight an open letter, which was copied to Park, basically saying, um, "I didn't say this. I don't. I don't believe it. Everyone knows that you did it, and please." spread this letter, so there's no, no not saying many. So, yeah, it was open in 1908 when he says to Park, honestly, it wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't me that's been saying this in your course. But it, but it is a, a, it, it's a, it is a rather, rather lovely irony that, and, and again, it's, it's, this shows you how small the golf world was in those, in those days. The cult has, be, has become accepted as a great expert on golf architecture. Without ever actually practicing as a golf
0: architect, and I guess sort of just jumping forward a little bit, and obviously you've already mentioned uh, Mackenzie's involvement at, at Allwoodley in uh, in Yorkshire. I believe Mackenzie was was engaged to design some holes, and obviously the committee were just concerned to to get somebody that knew what they were talking about just to oversee. And in his second paying job, Harry Colt was dispatched to. Uh, just check over what Dr. Mack had laid out, and I believe they got on famous. Yeah,
1: so Mackenzie was uh, what, how, was a golfer. He was a member of at least one of the cl- one other club in Leeds, and he was part of the Old Woodley project from the start, um, and he was appointed as honorary secretary. The rest of the committee clearly were nervous about entrusting the design of their course to somebody who never done done anything to do with it before. So they they obviously... Mackenzie, again, was pretty clearly a fairly strong-willed individual. Um, And you can imagine him and the rest of his committee butting heads quite a bit. And eventually somebody saying, as a compromise, okay, fine, we'll go with you if your plans are... Reviewed by some by independent experts and, and are accepted as being the right thing to do, and that was when they hired Colt. Um, and as a, now, as as you as you correctly said, that was Colt's second paying gig after his renovation of the Gantin Course, which is his first paying gig. Um, the interesting thing about it is that he was paid, if I'm rightly ten or eleven pounds by. McIntyre for the work, and twenty by Old for just reviewing Mackenzie's plans. So, what that says, I don't quite. Know. I don't quite know.
0: Well, they obviously valued his expertise. Well, Ganton, <laughs> Ganton. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we we might just sashay a little bit into the rules for or of 1902, which obviously related to the introduction of the Haskell ball. Uh, Coburn Haskell invented the first rubber cord golf ball I believe in 1898 initially introduced into the USA making its way to Britain in the year 1900. Um, It's interesting to note the parallels perhaps to modern day RNA and USGA distance and sight reports which obviously relates to the ever-increasing distances that the professional and elite amateurs hit the golf ball. Um, In terms of of, of the conversation that was going on with the RNA and the Rules Committee, ultimately they voted in favour for the continued utilisation of the rubber cord ball. Cole voted in favour, and his friend John Lowe voted against. Do we know how close the vote actually no, was? No, we don't. Uh, um,
1: the, the, okay. uh, if, you, if one were to speak to the RNA, to the people in the St Andrews Golf Museum, they could probably review the r and and find out, but it's not something I'm, I've ever um, tried to do.
0: Okay. I, I guess just in general terms then, what do you feel the consequences of this particular introduction uh, to golf design and the wider golf industry? Well, was?
1: it's essentially the, 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 that was Colt's career. Um, one of the interesting things about Colt's career is the number of pre- nineteen oh five whatever courses that he rebuilt, even in those early years. And that was because they were all too short once the Haskell was brought in. Um, Darwin said when he was writing about Sellingdale that it was fearfully long and that it was one of the few courses that you could say was improved by the Haskell because it became more playable. Um, and essentially for the open the first certainly up until World War World War One. A lot of Colt's work is essentially rebuilding uh, old, older courses that have been rendered too short by the introduction of the high school. Now, I don't suppose he um, thought about that in 1902 when he voted for it to be um, accepted, but it is quite an interesting ir- It's quite an interesting, in- interesting irony, nonetheless
0: yeah certainly is certainly is i had had that thought myself uh, over the last couple of days i guess if we look at swinley forest uh, a course that colt uh, at the site that o- the Colt was involved in designing uh, which opened in 1911 and an often used quote from colt refers to swinley forest as his least bad course i've never actually been able to
1: find now okay. that quote that quote was supposed to have come in a letter to tom simpson but i've never actually been able to find that 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 actual quote well yeah it's one of those things so well so well attributed
0: no for sure but it's assuming he said it and and i think it uh, from from what i understand it's probably in keeping with perhaps the sort of individual he was but what do you think that comment assuming that he said it tells us about harry colt the man
1: um it's fairly well understood that Colt was a very certainly as an as an adult and an older man, Colt was a very quiet, modest, typical English gentleman. Um, he didn't like to. He wasn't somebody. He wasn't somebody who was going to stand up and trumpet how great he was. At the same time, he was clearly quite quite good at selling his services. So you know. He, Let's just let's just say it's, it's a typically subtle statement, and made by made by an intelligent man who realises that in the middle class English circles of the day, shouting about how great you were wasn't wasn't a particularly sensible way to operate.
0: Yeah, and probably a counterpoint to his uh, one-time partner, perhaps Mister. Alastair, Doctor. Alastair. Yeah, I think
1: that's a fair comment. I mean, Mackenzie was clearly a much more upfront guy and perhaps that's why he felt so home in the space, but, you know, speculative.
0: With the benefit of time, Adam, do you feel that Swinley still represents the, the zenith of Colt's design output? I don't
1: know. It's, it's, it's purely subjective in the end. No, there, there can be no doubt that Swinley is a fabulous course. Um, there can also be no doubt that Swinley's reputation is enhanced by the nature of the club and how, how quiet it is and how special it feels to play golf there. Um, playing anywhere that's the haunt, that's the hangout of in, the elites in, in any activity tends to be regarded as being very, a special thing to do. And Swinley is a special place to play golf. Is it the best? I don't know, you make your own decision. You make your own judgment. Okay.
0: It would be remiss of me not to deal very briefly with Colton in North America. As you said, he made three extended trips to the USA prior to World War One, and was involved in a number of projects such as Toronto Golf Club, which you mentioned, where Stanley Thompson was a member. Old Ellen in Chicago, where Donald Ross was uh, appointed construction supervisor. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Pine Valley, where he assisted George Crump with some routing root- challenges on the now perennially rated number one course in the world. Coast long-time partner, Hugh Allison, would return to Pine Valley post-World War One to assist the committee in completing the course after Crump's death. And Allison, obviously, would subsequently base himself in Detroit as he built the firm's influence both in North America... Only and- in the summers,
1: apparently. He would, he would always come home for winter.
0: Yeah, and, and obviously Japan, where... Arguably, he had the same sort of influence that Mackenzie had in Australia. Yes. Again, not particularly focusing on the USA, but it, it would be remiss of me not to mention those uh, two or three particular points. Perhaps if we take a look at Colt specifically in relation to St. Andrews, we obviously always hear of how much Dr. Mackenzie revered the old course at St. Andrews. I'm assuming that a similar reverence was held. By his one time partner, Hart. yeah, no, there's no
1: doubt about that. Um, Colt became the same RNA member in 1890. Um, he won the, the RNA's Jubilee Vals competition, which, interesting was a handicap competition, and obviously, he was one of the club's elite golfers. Um, but he won it twice in 1891 and 1893. This as is an aside it fascinates me that he won the jubilee vase twice but never really contended to win the King William the fourth medal which is the the rna's principal scratch prize um and you, you, you again you tell me my my theory is that the, the vase was match play and medal was his medal play and colt was renowned as being a very strong match player and perhaps was less formidable as a metal, as metal player. But, you
0: know. Yeah. Well, I'll defer to your uh, greater knowledge. Uh, anyways, so wisdom Cal- on the Cal- topic. Colton yes,
1: he, he remained a member of the RNA throughout his life. Um, he actually proposed Dr. McKenzie as a member. Uh, McKenzie obviously was not. <sighs> Social class in the, in the English is such a complex subject but Mackenzie was born and brought up in Yorkshire and although he was a Cambridge man he was a medic and he probably didn't mix in quite he didn't appear, doesn't appear to have played golf in Cambridge uh, at Cambridge rather Uh, and so he he didn't mix in the same social circles as Cole did Mackenzie and I about as 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 of interest went to the same school. But uh, one of the interesting things about Swinley, Colt's father, as I said, was a was a was a barrister. Been, I know because the story became a barrister. So Colt was a very solid middle class. But he wasn't by English establishment standards that poor. It was an anonymous middle class existence. By the time he gets to Swinley, it is some very elite people involved the earl of derby is one of the people involved in the foundation of the club and all the while and at the time it was known as lord derby's course so by that stage colt is mixing and hobnobbing with some of the grandest people in the country so you know it's interesting of how he's gone up in the world um Mackenzie was not in those social, social circles because he's stuck in Leeds and the Elite don't hang out
0: in Leeds. Um, just dragging you back to Colt at St. Andrews, uh, the growing popularity of the game led to a requirement for additional capacity at the home of golf. Colt was selected as designer for the new Eden course. Claude Harris was obviously appointed as contractor and the course was open for play in April 1914. Do we know, out of interest, who else may have been considered to design and build the Eden Course? I don't
1: think anyone wants to be quite honest. Um, So gestation of the Eden Course is quite complex. Basically, in about 1911, 1912, there was a a significant drought and the Old Course suffered really badly. The Old Course at the time was free to play. uh, And because it was controlled by the town, owned by the town but by, by, by the town it was not possible just to say we're going to propose a charge to play the golf course the new course which had been funded by the RNA um, you had to pay but you could play the old course for nothing so there was an, a very long debate about imposing the first green fee on the, on the old course and what was eventually decided was that they would impose a fee but if ground could be found, the revenues from that uh, from that greenfield, which was called the tariff, uh, would be used to fund the creation of uh, a fourth golf course. Uh, Colt was hired in 1911, 12 to review the condition of the old course and offer some suggestions on it. He actually didn't charge as a club member, although the club told him to do so, but he still refused to accept any money. Um, and it was after that that he was hired to design the Eden Course. Uh, in my, I, I can't prove it, but I don't think anyone, anyone else was ever considered.
0: Okay, okay. Um, I, I guess the um, cult selection and construction of the Eden Course at the Home of God surely cemented his reputation as the. I, I think. I, I think yes. I mean,
1: and I, I know that Cord um, Harris, for example, was very proud as a Southern Englishman. Who have been hired to build a golf course in, in St Andrews? I'm sure the same applied to cults. You know, it, it, it is something that was always going to be on his on his CV. He built this guy's built the golf courses in St Andrews. Um, yes, it's clearly very important.
0: Yeah, I, I think obviously it would be remiss of me, Adam, not to not to swing swing our conversation into cult in Ireland where probably I'm on, on, on slightly more firm footing. Uh, <laughs> uh, as as with much of his work in England and Scotland, his efforts in Ireland were often focused upon reworking existing designs to obviously accommodate the increased distances that the golf ball was traveling, and reimagining perhaps a more strategic type of golf that came into vogue through the greater appreciation of strategic design principles, as laid out by the aforementioned John Lowe in his concerning golf book. Uh, After the Great War, Colt seems to have been particularly active on the island of Ireland, with commissions undertaken at Royal Belfast, Royal Dublin, Royal County Down, and Royal Portrush, to name but a few. What sort of importance would you place on the common founding membership gene pool across these clubs, I think personified by one Sir Anthony Babington? Might this be an example of groupthink, and if so, probably just as well that Harry Colt was a master of his trade?
1: Well, Anthony Babington was clearly very important for Rush. Um, I think he was involved in the Beaver Park project in Belfast in the early 20s, which was clearly where he and Colton tend to know each
0: other. Um, And and in fact, sorry sorry to interrupt, there's a hole, the third hole I'm pretty sure in Royal Dublin is called Babington's. Oh, is it? I didn't know that.
1: It is. there you go. Um, Again... it golf by that at that stage is bigger than it was in 1907 1980, but it's still not that big a world and the guys, uh, anthony babington was somebody who would have traveled a lot who mixed in elite circles and yes he would have been involved in involved with or known to all the all the key clubs if i remember rightly Colt's first job in ireland was at rosa penna um, which intrigues me. I mean, if, I, you know, I've been to Rezafena several times, and it frankly still feels like the back of beyond. Yeah. What the hell must it have been like when Tom Morris went there? What must it been yeah. like when Colt went there?
0: If you think about it, he got there via stage. Yeah, you went by ship originally. I, I, I've talked to the cases about this,
1: um, and there's some questions to whether Colt would have gone by ship. Um, there was railway, not all the way, but then there was some kind of light railway passed away the way. to John, John Frank Casey. It, it's hard to tell, um, but yeah, Rosapena Rosa must
0: have been. Yeah, you know, that part of Donegal was too bloody Oh my it We've a we've we've a saying here, and excuse the the crassness of the language. Rosapena, with the greatest respect, back then was in the arsehole of nowhere.
1: Yeah, the arse nowhere. Else. But if you want to be really, really, it's actually in the the, the forehead end of some of these. It's right at to the top rather
0: than the bottom. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I guess it's it's probably useful just for those that don't know. Rosapenna was the world's first golf resort, initially opened in eighteen ninety one with an old Tom Morris writing. In between Morris and Colt, the triumvirate of Varden, Taylor and Braid appeared to have made a number of suggestions uh, improvement-wise. I understand that Colt visited in 1912 with a review to redesign the golf course. This visit led to the creation of at least 11 new holes. In his book Beyond the Lordship's Wildest Dreams, Pat Ruddy suggests that the course works that Colt oversaw were so dramatic that they involve the installation of a narrow railway line to import loam and other materials really? up the man. Old Tom Valley. I didn't know. Writing in 1927, Cole said it's difficult to write with restraint about Rossipena. The exceptional beauty of the surroundings is liable to interfere with unbiased. Yes, he
1: clearly loved the place. There's no doubt about it. And if you having said that it who wouldn't? It's
0: a glorious place, right? Yeah, I think they now have ooh, 11 or 1,200 acres under, under management between the. Uh, 63 holes they have
1: it it's fascinating how that place is going to change now that they have the st patrick's course um i i've I've been interested to follow that project for several years and what fascinating this is that this is a total aside but what what has always fascinated me at st patrick's is that the resort didn't need any more golf what it needed was a true marquee course. And it's playing. It's got one now. It's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. But basically, the cases are well aware of this. They're playing in the big leagues now.
0: It probably does lead me to think, do you think that Mr Colt himself myself would approve of the new St. Patrick's links?
1: Oh, speculation is speculation. I'm sure he pulled out. How would you not? It's a fabulous course. But um, total speculation, mm-hmm.
0: Ah, oh, Of course, of course. Uh, I, I guess we maybe move on to renovations at my, my own golf club, Royal Dublin, post-World War I. The club was originally founded in 1885, and for the first few years it led a nomadic existence until the early 1890s where it found a permanent home on a growing lowland sandbar within Dublin Bay. The original course at Dollymount was laid out by club founder John Lumsden, assisted by the Scottish professional Tom Gilroy. The golf club lands were requisitioned by the British army as happened uh, to many golf clubs around that time during World War One to facilitate musketry training for soldiers bound for the trenches in Belgium and France. During the course of its military use much of the internal site contour was flattened to facilitate trench digging, musketry ranges and officer accommodation. In conjunction with with returning the golf club property to its members the British army paid £10,000 towards the reinstatement of the facility, and Harry Colt was selected to reimagine the golf course. What can you tell us about Colt's efforts towards refreshing the dilapidated post-war Royal Dublin? Well, I mean, I think the answer
1: is in what you just said. You know, they'd they'd got a big fat slug of money from the army. They were able to to spend it on um, not only reinstating the golf course, but actually upgrading it. Um, I don't know a vast amount about Royal Dublin, Um, There's an interesting article from, Colt was there in 1920, there is, uh, where we are, there was a a great deal of work in this, there had to be removed a tremendous growth of grass as well as a huge rampart stretched across the ground in front of the Alts bunker which was used for targets and many other obstacles. Constructed by the musketry school, so clearly the, ori- the original course was of the um, you know the, the Victorian school. It, you know, it, it wasn't really a strategic golf course, and Colt made it so. Uh, and and that really, as I say, is a lot of Colt's career in a nutshell: taking old established golf courses that were not designed in accordance with the strategic principles that Lowe and he had formulated and transformed them so that they were.
0: Through the intervening years, John Morrison, Sir Guy Campbell, Eddie Hackett and Martin Hawtree have all advised and revised Royal Dublin. The members have recently approved a Clayton De Vries and Pont bunker plan aimed at reconnecting the club with cult-inspired strategic interest and variety, which is great. Mm. I, again, and, and this is probably more just reporting on something I suspect you won't know a huge amount more than this with regard to Port Marnock, but it does appear that Harry Cope visited Port Marnock Golf Club in 1919 and a report was issued to the committee with respect to suggestion, suggested improvements and amendments. I know Ali McIntosh has spoken to you about this. He's also spoken to me. Uh, Works were actually carried out in Port Marnock, I believe, during the 1920s by a delightful-sounding gentleman called Hugh Guppy Cairns. Mm -hmm. Now, Ali reckons that possibly Cairns used Colt's report as a guide or reference point. The works associated with this timeline would include a new green at the sublime par four fourteenth, and the creation of the iconic par three fifteenth, that's routed parallel to the velvet strand presenting panoramic views of the irish sea lambay island and ireland's eye and the host peninsula have you been able to find any reference or additional reference to cole's visit to port marnock so there
1: there, there are two things one is the only hard evidence we have of port marnock is there is a Colton Company advertising brochure published in 1930 which lists the courses with which they are involved in. Port Monarch was listed um, as a course which had been advised on, re- on, re- on, re- on um, some reconstructions. But I've never been able to trace any print affairs evidence of a visit or a works. Ali says there was a report written in 1919 that was lost in a House fire. And that he believes that the Cairns' work in the 20s was basically implementing course reports. Morrison also wrote a report on the course in 1938, which led to a couple of holes being reconstru- reconstructed. But this is all derived right from can touch. There is no corroboration, as far as I'm aware. Yeah,
0: goddamn clubhouse fires. Yeah, always the uh, case. So many. Of them. I-, I know I had suggested that we were just going to be. Doing Ireland, but Muirfield is obviously uh, the next one up on, up on the list, and I do appreciate that's not in Ireland. But 1923, obviously, the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers moved from Musselburgh Old Links out to the relative boondocks of Dunker Road in Gullen. The original 16-hole, actually, that doesn't make any sense. The original 16-hole golf course was laid out by Old Tom Morris. Obviously, Morris was long dead at that stage, so it obviously wasn't 1923. But 1923 was when Colt was involved. Oh, it was 1923. There we go, thank you. And apologies to HCEG for making that bloody mistake. An additional 50 acres was obviously purchased by the club in 1923. Here we go with the 1923 stuff. And Colt was engaged to redevelop the links to make the most of the extra real estate. For those uh, unaware, Colt's reworking in Muirfield. she originally, the, the Tom Morris routing seemed to have two concentric rings of nine holes. Yeah, that,
1: the, the, it's long believed. That the idea of the two loops for routing is something that Colt created—that's not true. Um, that's a Tom Morris innovation. Um, Colt retained the basic model of the routing, although it was almost entirely changed as a result of his work. Um, because, as you say, the basically there was a wall at the north end of the course, mm-hmm. and beyond that wall, between that between there and the fourth. Was fifty acres of Ringfern, which they acquired and took in, and there were. Let me have a look. I'm looking. At, I'm looking at the plan now. There are four or five holes almost entirely in that, in that land, and several of them that cross over, that cross over where the crossover, the weather wall was. So you know, it was a pretty a pretty major um uh, major change.
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the constant change in direction facilitates infinite variety through continual variations of playing angle relative to wind direction. Do we know, just as an aside, where uh, old Tom got the inspiration for his uh, conception? All I can say about that is
1: that, obviously, most of the old traditional links were out and back. Um, It's also worth noting that the majority of... Old pieces of old links ground are quite narrow, so if you have an area of ground that's very narrow, going out in one direction and coming back on there isn't isn't effective and efficient use of land. If you have, as at Muirfield, a much wider, deeper patch of links land, then you can then you can move about it in different sort in
0: a different sort of way. Yeah. Moving back to the island of Ireland in 1926, uh, obviously old Tom Morris was involved in the initial iteration of 18 holes across the dunescape at Newcastle back in the late 1890s. The club would go on to, to become Royal County Down, with additional improvements and suggestions being sought from Braid, Varden, Taylor and Sayers over the years. Colt, I believe, was engaged during 1925. And that the alterations that materialise saw the creation of both the present par three fourth hole and the remarkable par four that closes out the front nine. The stretch of the course benefited greatly from Coast revision, which spliced two old holes together, creating what we now know as the ninth. What can you tell us about what you found out about Coast time in Newcastle?
1: Not much beyond what you, you just said. There is still, as you, as everyone knows, a lot of blindness at Royal County Down. One presumes that there was even more before Colt was there. The old eighth and ninth were both blind holes. Um, the new ninth is, as everyone knows, a world-class hole. Um, Colt said when the various alterations have been completed in the long course we want the finest in the kingdom um, no one can argue with
0: yeah I mean maybe you'll allow me a little bit of leeway here I'm just going to take a look at, at Mackenzie's Australian trip, actually, from a chronological perspective, 1926. Obviously, urban myths suggests that Royal Melbourne may have initially approached Colt, perhaps through the RNA, to investigate whether he might be disposed towards travelling to Black Rock and Melbourne to design their new golf course. Um, probably ah, at this stage... I've never seen this.
1: suggest that, by the way. No problem. No, no, no it may, may not true, but I've never seen the evidence. So.
0: No, no problem. I, I guess... Let's just perhaps wonder for a moment. I'm actually going to borrow a question from a recent episode of the very well-recommended Australian Golf Passport podcast, where Scott Warren or Matt Malik are not 100% sure which gentleman posed this question, but how might a Colt visit have differed in terms of outcomes and influences on Australian golf? And I do appreciate this is pure conjecture. I
1: don't really think there's anything of any value that we can, that we can say about it. To, to be brutally honest, I mean, Colt and Mackenzie shared most of the same principles. Yeah. And they had different ways of working and were di- very different people. Um, one can perhaps say that Mackenzie's slightly more brash and upfront manner, perhaps tallies more closely with the sort of Australian psyche. You can imagine Colt. <laughs> running into some Australians and being called the stuck-up comedy bastards something like that but you know um, I don't know it, 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 it. there's so much that is there I don't I don't see a lot of
0: point in Westing and no, I got you okay no problem spot-on that's cool onwards to 1927 and Colton Allison's revisions at Ross's point County Sligo Golf Club was, of course, founded in 1894. An original nine hole course was designed by George Coombe. In 1906, William Campbell extended the course to encompass 18 holes. Colt was invited to visit the course in 1927. Ultimately, what have you been able to unearth of note with regards to the redevelopment of County Sligo?
1: Not a great deal, really. Um, there's an interesting article from January of 1927 that says Colt's been invited to come over and then just a few bits and bobs from 28, the, this obviously from the Irish newspapers. Um, there was... I, I recall there being a certain amount... I've only been to Ross's Point once. I recall it being, by the standards of a links, relatively up and down, um, there was less... Colt reduced the amount of climbing. But that's really the only... Thing of note that I can the work was I know completed by the end of 1928 and also interestingly apparently there was um, I don't quite know how the routing or or the ground that was used changed as a result of Colt's work but it's interesting that apparently there were basically beforehand there were some places on the course where tourists trippers as it was said at the time would hang around watching the golf whether it was schoolboys stealing nipping onto the course and stealing golf balls as as, as has happened i don't know but um that was apparently removed by colt's work uh and as i say a, a, a degree of climbing on what was the old 11th hole was something that was removed but okay. beyond that i don't mean over much
0: So we'll move on maybe to Royal Portrush's commission of both the Dunluce Golf Course which opened in 1932 and the Valley Course followed in 1935. The County Club was founded in Portrush as a nine-hole course in 1888 and obviously the ubiquitous old Tom would visit in 1889 and his suggestions would see the course being extended to 18 holes with the Royal designation arriving some three years later. Colt was engaged with the club in 22, 1922, that is, and spent a week surveying the property. The output of his survey amended to a routing plan that encompassed 54 holes, no less. Again, Franks Harris were appointed contractor as per the, uh, the Eden course in St. Andrews, uh, with the Dunluce opening for play in 1933, I believe. Am I correct in assuming that Colt Colt's Routing for the Dunluce moved the course to eastwards towards the cliffs at White Rocks and away from the environs of the train station and the tents.
1: Yeah, the the, chin, the the whole the whole Portrush thing is a very long-term project. Um, Doctor McKenzie was actually hired by the club back, back in nineteen nineteen, and he came up with the scheme. Yeah, so Mackenzie's scheme was described as virtually a reconstruction of the course. I don't know why it didn't happen, but the club had no security of tenure at the time. The local landowner could basically take land off, take the land off, and whenever he wanted, if you, if so chose. So they re- decided fairly early on that they needed to re- ob- obtain a proper lease on the ground. Uh, and when the once they had an agreement with the with the landowner for that they, they needed a lot of money um, for, and that's why it all took so long I think the Port Rushler was not in a position to fund a project like that and certainly the number of people that approached the local railway company um, to help them fund it presumably on the grounds that um, a really good golf course in the town would, in, would increase um, the visitor traffic there uh, and that and And basically, it all took a long time to put together The the actual build was not it was not slow um, so the Colt scheme was approved amazingly in July of nineteen twenty four okay Anthony Babington was involved that far back so it, it, it's, they, 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 needed a, they needed a new clubhouse, they needed a new ladies' clubhouse. Colt was brought in, as I said. I'm not sure why they didn't stick with Dr McKenzie young report that they had. He advised them that the best thing to do was to make one first-class course on a big scale and to have a second course working more or less in the centre to convert a clubhouse into a course for ladies and children perhaps other players. Who did not desire extra exertion so lord antrim who was the landowner at the time had as i say they, they had no security of tenure and that was the first thing that they wanted to sort and then they needed to they needed to sort the money i imagine the depression made that rather more, rather more difficult but by 1931 32 they had figured out a way to fund it And and the course opened, as you said, in in July of 1933.
0: And, of course, the Valley would appear two or three years later as well. I don't um, know a
1: great deal about the Valley course.
0: Um, It's one that always gets left in the shadow, and I can assure you, having played it on a number of occasions, it's probably the sixth or seventh best golf course in Northern Ireland. It's that bloody good. Like.
1: The interesting thing, as I understand it, about the valley is that it's almost, ex- apart from the holes that were lost to re- to build the two new co- new holes for the for the open. Yeah, that it's almost exactly as Colt left it, um, which is pretty interesting. There are not many of those.
0: Yeah, obviously, with the reworking of um, of the two holes on the Dunluce, which obviously removed a short par four and a longish par three. They were kind of separated, all all unto themselves, uh, on the valley. There was a couple of things. The eighteenth new hole; it's a short par four, and maybe one of the par fours, and the back nine was extended into a par five. There's one or two additional new holes, I think, uh, that m and E have been involved in, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the revision with the new holes, or onto the onto the, They're division.
1: changing the um, the upper, the par five, I believe, and they're. Very- they either are or have redone the green the, the green the seventh half.
0: Okay. Okay. No, I haven't I haven't been up since since May, but I didn't play only played the Dunluce, so I, I wasn't I wasn't down. No, I meant on the Dunluce. Oh I beg your pardon. So one of the new holes they're, cha- they're changing the Yeah, the the, 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 the long five five that, that Marks okay. built, I believe they're redoing the green. Okay, or, okay.
1: Or has done okay. it.
0: Interesting, interesting. I, I'm sort of interested just to take a look at, and one one thing I haven't given you an advanced warning on this, one of the omissions that I, I didn't mention was Colt's involvement with Royal Liverpool. What, if anything, do you know about uh, about that? Well, that
1: was done in, in a number of different iterations. Um, he was there at least twice in, in 1913, and then again in 23-24. Um, Um, Interestingly, Colt and Hoyleck were were both born in the same year. The the club dates from 1869, as as did Colt. Uh Hoyleck is a fascinating place because it was, obviously it was somewhere that that went below the radar for many, many years, having having lost the Open for about the best part of 50 years. But at the time it was regarded as one of the very greatest golf courses, John Lowell's. Massively um, uh, a lover of Hydek. Colts introduced the. Um, what's it? The. Uh, wow, we, where are we, where are we? Um, Here we go. So, the old. The 10th of Roland Paul. Obviously, the, 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 the most. Going back in history, the most famous Par 3, that Roddell pulled is the seventh, um, because it used to have out-of-bounds, basically right against the green, um, which was removed three years ago. And that was regarded by Darwin as being one of the best short holes in the world. One of the other famous holes in the old the, the original layout was the 10th, which had a big punch well green, Colt basically removed it and created a new green up in the up in the dunes. If you've been to Ireland, you'd be aware that most of the courses are in really flat, but there's a, a row of lower dunes by the, by the sea. The course, the original course didn't really go into those dunes. Colt took it up there. Um, then when he went back in 23, 24, he created several new holes, including the, um, what was the, the famous 17th of all hole, where, where again the the green was hard against the road and you could basically put out bounds that had to be rebuilt in order to take the open back there because it was just fundamentally no way of getting the spectators around it and that plays now as the as the 15th hole because they've changed the routine which yeah it, it certainly I think was a shame because the, the the single most famous thing about Hardick is the first hole with the outer bounds Behind the cop, behind the cop, and where the practice ground is, and I, I, I personally think it's sad that that's not the not the first hole any longer.
0: Yeah, and obviously they put that. Uh, Mackenzie and Ebert have designed uh, another part three, the seventeenth, I think it is, with blowout bunkers and a very difficult but, perch grade. Which is
1: a, I must say, my
0: my friend James
1: Bledge is the new course manager at Twilight, and I've discussed that hole with him because it's clearly absolutely spectacular. But it also clearly looks nothing like anything else at well
0: But, but arguably, it looks quite similar to M work at Hillside and um, the Island Golf Club in Dublin. Yeah, I mean
1: they they they, they have a, a they have a way of doing things. That's fine.
0: Indeed, indeed. Uh, I guess maybe taking a look at some of the commercial partnerships that Harry Colt seems to have had over the years, that may have been used at increasing both awareness in and the development of the colt design brand i'm aware of his collaboration with both carters and sutton seeds can you tell us whether colt and his partners had any other commercial relationships that assisted in gaining commissions or introductions to prospective new clients not that i've
1: seen the the, the carters and sutton's thing is interesting because obviously they were very close they were basically deadly rivals and um sutton's there is quite a bit of Sutton's original material out there and they they had to be in their minds about Carters. They felt that Carters were very good at getting in there quickly and finding out that golf projects were happening and getting the business before anybody else knew about them. Um, so Sutton's hired Colts quite early in his career as an advisor. They paid him a retainer, not a commission. Um, and the reg- agreement was that he would promote their seeds on his project but that didn't stop him working with carters but I, i haven't got much evidence of him working with carters in the uk but carters were absolutely fundamental to his work in north america um they certainly got got him his first jobs toronto and detroit in 1911 and quite a lot of colt's work on his through his three u.s trips whilst courses where Carters were. Carters were in the States before Sutton's Carters had an American operation quite like They were a very progressive company and they clearly played an important role in developing golf career in the States. Yeah,
0: I mean maybe we can take a look at something that has always mentioned as a master router. Okay. So addition obviously to the importance of the quality of a site for golf it's widely recognised that the utilisation of the site through the development of a compelling and sympathetic routing that fits the specific property is important. Cole is considered to be a master router of golf courses. What process or processes did he utilise in the course of formulating the orientation of his routing for his courses?
1: Well, it varies. Certainly, places like Swinley and St George's Hill. St George's Hill is a very interesting one because, because the... The site was originally completely and densely wooded. So Colt routed that course through a forest. How the hell he did it, I don't know. Because he he didn't have months and months to spend walking round and around that site, and he couldn't possibly have had a topographic map to have done to any kind of bond standard. So the routing of St George's Hill is something of a miracle in many weather. I don't know how the hell it was done. Swindley was done basically by walking walking, 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 walking sight. Um, and the routing of Swindley is quite interesting because if you look at the overhead of Swindley, there's a lot of ground out there. Uh, the, 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 the ground was the, the it was leased from the crown basically. And as Colts rooting existed before the property was secured the original developer alexander Sullivan green and colt were basically partners on on the job and colt spent a lot of time exploring that ground and creating his routine then he put it together and green then went away and talked to the crown the crown of representatives and secured a lease on that on on the, the site that was needed so that's very usual. No, normally obviously golf architects give the piece of ground and said, root, told, root, root a course on that. Colt was said, he has an enormous area of heat. Go root a golf course and then we'll we'll figure out how we can we're, we're gonna get the land and build it. As far as routing techniques is concerned, as is well known and as is, is a very complex nowadays, Colt rooted by the way of Par 3 holes a lot. He would generally place his Par 3s where there was broken ground. So if it was somewhere where there was a ravine or a quarry or something, you could bet that Colt would build a Par 3 there. It's interesting that um, at Addington, which Colt designed along with J.F. Abercrombie, Frank Pont, who is currently um, restoring the golf course there, is fairly convinced that the, the Colt did not do the routing at least on his own, because there's a hole at the top of the golf course where Frank says, if this is a Colt routing, this would be a par three, and it's not. And I think that's a, quite a compelling theory. Colt would often use, again, which is a very common common technique now. He would use long par fives, uh, or longish. He didn't like very long holes very rarely a hole significantly over five hundred yards on Colts course courses. Um, he would use par fives to, to occupy the most tedious ground. If you go to Southfield in Oxford as an example, there are two back-to-back par fives going to and from the clubhouse, at the ninth and tenth, across the most boring ground on the property. He was just bloody good at it. Yeah, you know, there's not really much else that, that one can say.
0: Yeah, I mean, perhaps your comment about the Addington sort of gives me a nice little sachet into uh, just his view on trees, gorse and vegetation. Perhaps I might read out a quotation from the great man himself and it goes something like this. Where the ground is covered densely with trees, it is often possible to open up beautiful views by cutting down a little additional timber. It would be unwise to create narrow lanes required for play. Every endeavour should be made to obtain a free and open effect. How do you, do you feel? How did Colt feel about the utilisation and maintenance of trees, gorse and vegetation on a golf course? Well, you know, no golf
1: architects like trees that are close to their their holes, already and Colt was no no exception to No exception to that. He felt that trees were not a good were not a good hazard, which is pretty much unarguable, um, and. Where he had a significant quantity of trees, he would try to clear as much as possible. And St George's Hill, for example, there were many thousands of trees cut down, and there were hundreds and hundreds of men building building the golf course and cutting down trees. Um, vegetation generally, Colt was probably the first. And this isn't the vegetation point, but Colt was probably the first guy. To sort of understand the landscape value of golf courses, he he wrote that when somebody goes away to play golf, he likes to pick somewhere pretty, but it's not. But he, what he what people don't realize is that they like playing they like playing golf in pretty places. Uh, he was one of the first people to understand that. Lands, the landscape value of a golf course was an important component to its value of its overall
0: value. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we look at his career in totality, obviously it commenced somewhere around eighteen ninety five and concluded with his death in the early fifties. During that approximately, 50 actually, years, to be fair. It concluded with World War Two. He was He was completely retired. After So 40 years then so, I suppose. Obviously over that 40 year period, the world experienced significant change. Golf was of course not immune from the societal, technological and and even the evolution of golf equipment. I'm keen to understand how Colt's philosophy from a design perspective evolved over time. Perhaps we can look at this through three specific headings. Drainage and irrigation, bunkering and green site selection
1: um so drainage yes it's important um interestingly he wrote at one point that he initially had not felt that artificial water was important but that he'd come to change his mind and he was probably a very you know there was no automatic fairway irrigation systems in those days obviously but Colt was uh, played an important part in getting water laid onto golf courses to allow the watering of greens, which as I say he initially didn't believe was necessary, but came to realise quite quickly that it was. Um green site selection. I'm not convinced that theres, there's much to be said about that. He would, you know, he, he 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 believed that picking the potting green sites was at the core of, of, of golf design. Um his bunker style is quite interesting. If you read the early stuff, pre World War One, it's all about bunkers that were torn out of the land. If you, if you, often into natural upslopes, but if you imagine the natural upslope and then a giant hand going in and tearing half that away, that was how he wanted his bunkers to look. So, very natural, ragged edge. In the 20s, as He's working with Franks Harris, not exclusively, but a lot of the time. He, he starts to develop a more formal, complex edge. And if you look at the 1920s Franks Harris built courses, they often have a more complex but constructed edge of the sort of shape that the old course at Sunningdale now has, after Martin Horchard worked there about 10 years ago. And then towards the end of his career, he starts to embrace a very complex, lacy edged, almost Simpson esque bunker look. And manner in he is a very good, which is one of his latest but last courses, is a very good example. A very good example there. So basically, he, go, he goes, I won't, won't say he goes through three phases, but that's the route which he went in terms of Bunkery. But you must also remember that compared to a golf course done today by one of the elite crews, whether that be Tom Doak's crew or Hansens crew or whatever, those guys are building the golf course features themselves. So the architect has a much more hands-on influence over how things look. Colt had not degree of that because he was working with a contractor and with foreman that he knew quite well. But at the same time he wasn't on site every day he wasn't saying dig a bunker this shape um he, it was a more organic process mm-hmm.
0: in terms of many of the gb and i courses associated with cult a lot of them have been revised reimagined redesigned restored and perhaps even wrecked uh to lead as appropriate over the years in your experience do you feel in just in general terms, that these cult courses have kept faith with the underlying design principles that the great man espoused or something else? Some have,
1: some haven't. It's not really all you can say. And the restoration movement, which has been very popular in the States for 15, 20 years, has only really started to get any traction in the UK over in, in, in very recent years. You know, I, I don't want to name names. But there have been projects where they've been claiming to restore what Colt built and then built something that looks absolutely nothing like what Colt would ever build. And that, you know that's commonplace. Um I, I think that's regretful, but you
0: know, people do it, just their golf course. What sort of legacy do you think that Harry Colt has left the world of golf?
1: He created the refreshing golf course. Architecture. That's really the most fundamental thing my friend john challenger in chicago he and i worked quite closely on this when colt was in chicago in 1913 building old album there was a dinner at the start of his trip at which basically all the significant golf courses in chicago were represented and john says that dinner is the start of the golden age in chicago and essentially Cult created the Golden Age is my basic contention.
0: Yeah, that's not a bad legacy, is it? No, one? that's not. Enough. In terms of his writings, you chastised me relatively recently on Twitter when I suggested that the Great Harry didn't write that much. It appears, though, through your research for the book, you've uncovered significant heretofore forgotten writings from coast it's, all, it's
1: all, But it's all very busy, Shane. There are not huge... Uh, there,
0: there,
1: there, there isn't a apart from his book's message on golf, on golf course architecture there isn't an article that says this is my philosophy on golf design by harry colt it, it, there's a bit here and a bit there and a bit elsewhere and that's really it
0: i suppose for those looking to uh gen up a little bit more on um on cult while waiting for your your new book more enduring the brass the books available heretofore are fred hawtrees Book Colton Co., published in 1991, which I believe is out of print. Uh, Peter Pugh's Creating Classics, published in 2008. Anthony Galtz's book on Colt and Allison's work in North America, which was published in 2018 and available online. Tony's
1: in a second edition
0: of that as well. Oh, very good. Okay. There's obviously also a number of publications with chapters and articles written by Colt. These books include The Book of the Links, first published in nineteen twelve, and some essays on golf course architecture published in nineteen twenty. That sort of concludes the cult element for the time being but i'd like to understand you obviously founded oxford golf consulting in 2012 i'm interested to understand what sort of projects you get involved with on behalf of golf clubs that may seek to take advantages of the services that you offer
1: i've not been doing that much recently but essentially obviously i'm a marketing in general um, who's become very focused on history so i'm interested in helping clubs understand their history and how that relates to the evolution of their course. I'm interested in in helping document clubs' history. And I'm interested in helping clubs understand what they have. And yeah, I'm not a golf architect I don't seek to be a golf architect, but I do have some knowledge about how you go about enhancing or altering golf course. And I'm interested in helping clubs not mess up their golf courses fundamentally. <laughs> fundamentally. There have been a lot of golf course projects that have resulted in something that was not better than where they started. You know, if I could have a legacy, it would be, I, I, it would be reducing the number of those projects.
0: Yeah, so I, I guess to a certain degree, maybe you're fulfilling a degree of The role that Bradley Klein does over in uh, the United States, just to as as Bradley says himself, just getting hands on with some of his projects. Yeah, he's what does he suggest that giving the golf club committee or the golf club a bullshit writer in terms of uh, trying to understand uh, the questions to ask and the and the systems and and processes and procedures to go through in terms of you know briefing properly and understanding what you can and cannot do
1: yeah that's, that's not, not a bad not a bad
0: assessment Obviously, you have also, you're the, the editor of Golf Course Architecture magazine, which you mentioned in the introduction. Yeah, what and I'll get back to the writing the October issue, issue Yes, yeah, sure. well, so I'm keeping you from, from that particular deadline, but thank you very much for facilitating the conversation in, in the midst of all of that. Um, <laughs> I'm just interested to know how you've managed to pivot from business journalism to writing about your passion for Golf Course Architecture. It was magazine. a complete accident.
1: Um, in 2004, I went to work for Tudor Rose as the head of editorial. Tudor Rose at the time was a technology publisher, I was a business and technology journalist. But at the time, Toby Inalton, who's one of the two brothers who owns the company, still does, was working on a magazine about golf course design. was hatching the idea of a magazine about golf course design. Um, and by a, an all-evolutionary process, I ended up writing mostly about golf course design
0: end of story <laughs> how bad how bad happy is a pig in proverbial well i don't make as much money as i might have otherwise but i have more fun it's it's all about finding a job that doesn't feel like a job i suppose
1: yeah no that's a
0: good it's a very good assessment right we're down to the final two questions and i ask my my all of my guests the same final two questions you are undoubtedly a very well-traveled golfer what five courses or indeed destinations are on your bucket list? You have a degree of flexibility here. Please interpret the question in whatever manner works best for you. Oh.
1: Uh, I still haven't seen Pine Valley, and I really must. Um, I want to go to Landman in Nebraska, which my friend Rob Collins and Dad King opened last week. Um. I haven't seen West Norfolk, Brancaster, and I've wanted to for years and years. That's three. I haven't seen El Soler in Spain, and I really want to. Uh, One more. I'd like to see Tar 18 New Zealand and the other courses that are being built around there at the moment.
0: TRI, yes. Um, I. I, I was talking to uh, Clyde Johnson when he was down mm. back in February or March. Himself and Angela and Tom were hard at it. It seems to be coming together pretty pretty well, about the north and south course there. So uh, I've uh, I've that on my bucket list as well. So you're in good company. <laughs> the, f- the final question, Adam, with regard to the interview and the podcast relates to augmenting our collective golf book libraries. What two books would you recommend that golfers should purchase to add to any personal golfing library?
1: In my opinion, everyone should have a copy of Darwin's golf Courses: of the British Never Everyone should have Concerning Golf by John Lowe. Excellent. Well,
0: I'm glad to report I have both of those, so... <laughs> <laughs> Listen, many thanks for your time today, Adam. It really Welcome. is appreciated. You might just share with people in conclusion where people can find you on the socials, how they can perhaps subscribe to Golf Course Architecture magazine and indeed find out more information on Oxford Golf Consultants.
1: Well, let me think. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Oxford Golf Cons. I'm on Facebook, both of myself and I have an Oxford Golf Consulting page. We have a website, obviously, um, for Golf Course Architecture. You should visit Architecture, architecture.net, where we publish news regularly, and also the magazines are available, and you can subscribe to the pep
0: magazine. Um, that's about it, really. Well, I'm sure that the new cult book will be a triumph upon release, and I look Eventually, forward to pre- pre- pre-or- pre-ordering my copy. Let me, put
1: it, let me put it this way, Shane. My initial thought, when I started to work on it, was that I wanted to launch the book at the Port Rush Open in 2019.
0: Mm-hmm. I didn't. <laughs> but there is, that, another, there, is, there is another one coming up in Port Rush. Yeah, so I, know, the- I know,
1: and that wouldn't be a bad time, bad time to do it, but, you know, several years later.
0: Yeah, so, so any uh, update I, on I, Mummy Mike? The trouble is I'm trying to write a very long,
1: complex book mm-hmm. while trying to earn a living. Yeah. Um, and it's not the easiest thing in the world.
0: I can, let imagine. Me, I let can me, imagine. Let me just,
1: let me just put it this way. I have on, I, I keep all my research stuff on Dropbox. Mm-hmm. There is a folder on, in my Dropbox fo- folder called Cult Book Files. That file is 3.95 gigabytes,
0: including 5,592 items. Is that all? <laughs>
1: it's a lot of work.
0: That, that that sounds like a, a, a multi multi volume book is potentially. Well, I'm trying make- very very
1: hard for it not to be. Let's just put it that way. But well, it's already it's it's already getting longer and longer, than, a lot longer than I intended. So so if there's anyone anyone out listening there who's who has who's a really savage editor and has a very sharp blue pencil, give me a
0: call. <laughs> Adam, on that note, it has been a great pleasure to host you on the, on the podcast today. Many thanks for your time and your expertise and best of luck with the book. I look forward thanks. to seeing it when it comes out. Thanks, Jim. Catch you soon. Cheers, mate. Take care. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.gov or on Twitter at FirmandFastGolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.